Hello, and welcome to the story of Singapore, Episode 8, Moving Mountains. Okay, I might have jumped ahead of myself when I teased the conflict between Raffles and Farquhar towards the end of the last episode. As I was researching for this episode, I discovered a few points about Farquhar's administration of Singapore that I found insightful and fascinating. Well, lucky for me, there's just enough content to make one full episode, so I will leave the details of the two men's rivalry for the next episode instead. After Raffles departed from the British colony of Singapore for a second time in June 1819, Farquhar virtually had independent control over the trading settlement for the next three years. Though he had superiors to report to, they were largely uncommunicative. Raffles in Bangkulan was especially slow and tepid with his responses to Farquhar's queries, strange considering that Singapore was somewhat his baby, while the regional administration in British India was disinterested in bothering with the colony altogether. We cannot say for sure why that was the case, but we can hazard a guess. The political hoo-ha and backlash generated by the controversial founding of the Singapore settlement was big, to say the least. In the months that ensued, Raffles probably began receiving the very angry letters from company directors and politicians back home. With his political position threatened, he had to lie low for a while and distance himself from his role in Singapore. Then again, he was more of an idealistic administrator rather than a pragmatic one like Farquhar was. Working with constraints and details was perhaps not something he was particularly fond of, but that was exactly what developing colonial Singapore entailed. And besides, he still had other work to do. Despite his earlier attempts at reforms, the colony of Bangkulan was still in financial shambles. In the meantime, diplomatic exchanges between the British and the Dutch were underway. Though negotiations were subsequently stalled in 1820, there was a very real possibility that Singapore would fall into Dutch hands at any time should these talks resume and conclude, or worse, break down and erupt into violence. While the British India sent reinforcements to garrison Singapore, they were only there to prevent the embarrassment of having a British colony annexed by the Dutch so easily. With the situation this tenuous, any sort of investment into Singapore was deemed unwise and calls were even made to halt all construction and development. However, Farquhar forged ahead. As we discussed last episode, he needed people and money for economic growth. But of course, the logistics of building the emerging settlement up was a lot more complicated than simply getting these two basic ingredients down. After all, this was a task that neither Farquhar nor Raffles had any experience in. It is one thing to redevelop an already existing colony, and another thing to start completely from scratch. Farquhar's first order of business was deforestation. 
the territory that was leased to the British had a particularly rough terrain. Apart from the beach and occasional clearings, much of the land was engulfed in tropical jungles and mangroves with undergrowth so dense that they were impossible to penetrate. The trees had to be felled, the vegetation ripped out, and the ground leveled before any sort of building projects could even take place. Although Singapore was designated as a trading settlement, it had to be developed as a military outpost first. All colonies essentially started out as military ones before becoming trading ones. Because what good would trade be if it could not be protected at all? Earlier, Raffles had outlined ambitious defensive plans to safeguard the new colony and instructed Fakwa to execute them. However, given a shortage of building materials and funds, Fakwa could not afford to splurge. When construction commenced, a few of the costly fortification features proposed by Raffles were deemed unnecessary and had to be cut back. Plans for defensive forts were abandoned, but basic military buildings such as barracks, gunpowder magazines, guard rooms, and artillery batteries were constructed. To complete Farqua's overall defensive strategy, ancient fortification walls dating all the way back to the 1300s were repaired and extended to form a new defensive line. Military infrastructure was not the only building needs for the settlement. For any society and economy to function, other forms of critical infrastructure are vital too. To meet the food and water requirements of the growing population, supply facilities were built to stockpile and distribute imported food, reservoirs to collect and store rainwater, aqueducts to channel water from these reservoirs to the town, and wells to extract fresh groundwater. The hot and wet climate of Singapore also posed significant problems to the colony. Three small hospitals, one for Europeans, one for Asians, and one for the financially destitute, were erected to combat the rampant proliferation of diseases. Complementing these efforts was the implementation of preventative public health and safety policies. The people were ordered to keep the area around their residences clean, and they were forbidden from throwing their trash anywhere except in designated areas or into the sea. Poor fishes. Additionally, since many of the buildings were made with wood and attered roofs, or roofs made from dried palm leaves, they were highly flammable, especially during the hotter months. To aid firefighting efforts, each household was mandated to store as much water as possible too. Promoting trade and commerce was yet another top priority. The fundamental economic model that entrepreneurs like Singapore had has three basic steps. 1. Receive imported goods. 2. Store the merchandise in a warehouse to put them up for trade. And 3. Re-export cargo purchased at the warehouse. Today, we do most of that purchasing ourselves on e-commerce platforms, but back then, there was no eBay or Amazon. One company had to ship goods in 
from producers in one location and another company to ship goods back out to consumers in another location. By becoming marketplaces and distribution centres, entreports effectively allow manufacturers to engage in long-distance maritime trade while reducing the costs and risks they undertake to sell products to customers on the other side of the world. Given the high volume of inbound and outbound shipments, efficiency and organisation were paramount to the entreport's success. Roads were paved and bridges constructed to facilitate land transport and travel throughout the settlement. Rivers were dredged to widen and deepen the waterway so that smaller vessels could navigate easier and further upstream. Major streets were named and marked to assist people in identifying and locating places. Land was divided up into smaller allotments, which were numbered, catalogued and drawn on the master plan for urban planning and future redevelopments. Various civil and commercial buildings were also constructed to support government and commercial activities of the colony. Apart from Farquhar's administration, business in Singapore was further supported by three key players. The first was the British and Chinese banks. In principle, banks financed trade and commerce by providing loans to firms, allowing them to continue operations without financial disruptions. This is especially helpful when businesses do not have sufficient cash on hand to conduct transactions because moving physical money from one place to another takes time. Debtors may also delay or default on their payments to the companies, resulting in more lost time. A financial bottleneck in one company can create financial bottlenecks in other companies and in turn spark a chain reaction that grinds the economy to a halt. Bank loans simply bridge these money gaps, providing the economy sufficient liquidity to keep running. The second was the British and European import-export companies. Typically, these firms purchase raw materials and commodities from local suppliers for export to manufacturers in Europe where they will be transformed into useful products. The firms would then import these goods from the manufacturers for distribution in the region on a commission basis. The third was the Chinese brokers. They were the ones who stored, graded, processed, repackaged, transported and transshipped these goods, forming the vital link between the few European import-export firms and the many native suppliers and traders in Southeast Asia. One of the most significant parts of trade in Singapore, arguably, was not so much in commodities as it was in human cargo. Male Chinese immigrants would form the bulk of the manpower in Singapore for the next several decades. They had chosen migration to escape poverty in China and seek a better life overseas. But little did these men know they would be doomed to a life of long hours under the hot sun and back-breaking labour for a pittance. Almost all these Chinese immigrants were male 
and at the time, there would not be nearly enough females for them to settle down and start families. Overworked, underpaid, and despondent, many would turn to vices, crime, and violence just to survive. And interestingly, where there is an overabundance of males, the world's oldest profession will also thrive. Immigration, ethnicities, sexes, vices, crime, and so many other unmentioned factors. As you can imagine, all these issues would clash and amalgamate to form a tangled web of problems and complications for Singapore's future development. For now, we will keep them as breadcrumbs and examine their social, political, economic, and cultural ramifications in a later episode. As Singapore's population grew, so too did its crime rate. In his two visits to Singapore, Raffles did not leave behind any protocols for a police force. Farquhar was expected to be both the judge and the police. However, by November 1819, just five months after Raffles left Singapore a second time, the situation had grown out of Farquhar's hand. Addicted to opium smoking, Chinese labourers began gambling away what little they had, accruing significant debt and committing petty crimes to get their fix. With the increasing workload of managing the expanding settlement, Farquhar could not fulfil his police duties alone. He needed help. But establishing and maintaining a police department cost additional money, money which Farquhar could not get from taxes and custom duties because Singapore was a free port, and money which he could not get from the company because to them Singapore was a temporary thing and also because Raffles said so. Hence, to supplement the shoestring budget that Raffles was providing, Farquhar decided to auction monopoly licenses on the very vices that were causing social problems and use the revenue raised to fund his police department. In May 1820, the first police force in Singapore, consisting of 12 officers, was established. It was led by Farquhar's son-in-law, Francis Bernard, who was joined by a Malay clerk, a jailer, a police sergeant, and eight constables. While domestic affairs faced pressing challenges, Farquhar could not neglect foreign affairs entirely either. Fostering economic relationships with neighbouring countries was a crucial aspect of Singapore's marketing strategy. Fortunately for Singapore, Farquhar was just the man for the job. For the better part of two decades, he had been engaging in diplomacy across Southeast Asia, earning the respect and admiration of its leaders and merchant communities. Leveraging on his charisma and reputation, Farquhar delicately handcrafted messages and sent gifts to kings throughout the Malay archipelago, advertising Singapore as an up-and-coming, tax-free British trading centre in Southeast Asia. Diplomatic relations with rulers in the Indo-Chinese peninsula were also established to capture a greater share of the Asian trade. By December 1820, 
Singapore's trade had eclipsed that of Malacca's. This might not sound all that significant, but remember, the city of Malacca had 400 continuous years of commercial developments while just about two years ago, Singapore was basically an island covered in tropical rainforest. What Farquhar had achieved was nothing short of a monumental feat. Yes, Singapore's free port status was a major boon to its rising popularity, but it was no silver bullet. If the settlement were to lag on its operations and disrupt the movement of cargo, then the cost of having goods stuck in Singapore would start to outweigh the benefit of saving on taxes at other ports. Merchants would rather pay the fees than experience such a hassle. Ultimately, the entreport needed the right infrastructure and sufficient manpower to support the growing weight of trade that was coming in, both of which Farquhar had to single-handedly develop from the ground up and at the double. Not to mention, Singapore, for all its geopolitical benefits, suffered from the greatest disadvantage of them all, the uncertainty of British retention. Farquhar had to work around the many restrictions imposed on him by Raffles and Lord Hastings, the Governor-General of British India. The early pioneers and settlers of Singapore were effectively taking a huge gamble on an unproven colony. And the kings and rulers who entertained Farquhar's request for trade and diplomacy were risking repercussions from the Dutch. If either party had refused to meet the challenge, then the dream of a British Singapore would have collapsed. So, it is not an exaggeration when we say that against the odds, the colony of Singapore miraculously survived its infancy years. Meanwhile, the numbers that Farquhar was pumping in Singapore spoke volumes to the bureaucrats. British officials were beginning to take note of its stellar performance. Across the fence, Dutch officials were also starting to realise the grave threat that the free port was posing to their economic interests. The tides were turning and in three years' time, talks between the British and Dutch would be reignited to finalise the terms of the new Anglo-Dutch Treaty. We will return next year on the 24th of January and in the next episode, we will finally get to the two men. While Farquhar is toiling away in Singapore, Raffles remains in Ben Coolen. Lapses in communication, deviations from protocols, and differences in opinions will compound and contribute to a growing rift between them. As the conflict bubbles up, Raffles will attempt to supplant Farquhar's authority, and when that fails, work to undermine his credibility. Till we hear from each other again, Happy Holidays, and I wish you a wonderful New Year.